Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, konnichiwa, wassalam alaikum, shalom, namaste. Wendell's World of Sports. If you want to listen to what's going down in the NFL, if you want to listen to what's happening in college football, I give it to you with passion. I give it to you with everything that I've got. I give it to you in an entertaining, thought-provoking, unique style. Wendell's World of Sports. Every podcast, I'm going to be talking about what's happening in the NFL. Every single podcast, I'm going to be talking about what's happening in college football. And I'm going to be giving it to you every single podcast. Wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, make sure you download, subscribe, rate, review. Most importantly, enjoy to the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking podcast of them all. The one and only Wendell's World and Sports. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roy, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, namaste. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos. Me llamo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports after a wonderful week of teaching the youth up in Mesquite, Nevada at the high school. I am Rip. Roaring, ready to go and go ahead and talk about what is happening in the world of sports. Before I do, I just want to ask, I just want to just ask you one question. What's up, man? How you doing? How you feeling? You're doing good. You're doing everything that you need to do to make this world, to make this place, to make your space, to make your neighborhood, to make your household, to make your husband, to make your wife, to make your kids, to make your dogs, to make your employees, to make your friends and neighbors the best that they can be. Are you going ahead and doing that with love, unity, peace, understanding, acknowledgement, understanding, educating, listening, learning, doing all the things that we need to do in a positive direction so we can take this world and we can leave the negativity behind, we can leave the ignorance behind, we can leave the privilege behind, we can leave the stupidity behind, we can leave those with ignorance in their hearts, in their brains, leave them behind, gather up the troops and move this society, move this planet in a direction of love, peace, unity, Harmony, respect for everybody, regardless of skin color, regardless of gender, regardless of who they worship, regardless of who they love, regardless of who their political affiliations are. Are we ready to do that? I hope so, man. But if you're not ready to do that, go ahead right now. Once this podcast is over, make a pledge to yourself that I'm going to try to just focus on one flipping person and let him know that, hey, man, you know what? Brothers and sisters, we are in this together. Love, peace, unity, harmony, understanding, all those good things. Not for my generation. Too late. Too late. Utopian society for my generation, the generation after me, the generation before me. Too late. We are too steeped in ignorance. We are too steeped in selfishness. We are too steeped in divisiveness. We are too steeped in selfishness and ignorance and racism 
for the society that I want to live in where everybody, everybody, regardless of skin color, regardless of gender, regardless of financial background, regardless of how much money you have in the bank is treated, are treated equals. Too late for my generation, but let's see what we can do for the younger generation. Let's see what we can do for the high school kids. Let's see what we can do for the elementary school kids. Let's see what we can do for the preschoolers. Let's see what we can do by building that foundation of love, unity, harmony, understanding, education, acknowledgement, and knowledge of self and knowledge of others. So we can uh, pass along a world when we go that will be made of unity, love, peace, understanding, togetherness, harmony for everyone. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I mentioned before, a lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Man, I've got some uh, NFL talk I want to be hitting on. I've got some uh, college football that I want to be hitting on right now as we Go to the middle, as we're in the middle of September. It's all about the NFL right now. Yet there's some small things going on in the NBA. Ben Simmons still hasn't been traded. Bradley Beal still hasn't asked for a trade. Damian Lillard has pledged his allegiance to the Portland Trailblazers moving forward. So the love of my life, as far as the NBA is concerned, really nothing going on. The countdown for me continues two months Less than two months, really, before the loves of my life, the true loves of my life, the Georgetown Hoyas begin their first game of the season in November. Hold on for a second. Thought just hit me, and it hurt my heart. Just for a quick second. No no ill will toward the young man. No hate for the young man. He made his decision. Chris Livingston, five-star recruit, came down to Memphis, Kentucky, Tennessee State and Georgetown, he decided that he was going to go to Kentucky for one year before he entered the NBA draft. All right. You want to play for Cheetah Perry? You want to play for Connor Perry? That's fine. I mean, he had a strong relationship with uh, Louis Yor, the assistant coach at Georgetown. He had a great uh, relationship with uh, Coach Ewing, America's coach, when he went on his visit. And in the building of the relationship, he talked about what a family environment and atmosphere that Georgetown presents to its uh, recruits, to its players. He decided that he wanted to go with Kentucky. I'm quite sure the name, image, and likeness, how much money he could make in the one year that he stayed either in Lexington or Washington, D.C. or Memphis, Tennessee, or I don't know where Tennessee State is. I'm quite sure that those things played a big role. I'm quite sure Kentucky offered him a boatload of money to go ahead and uh, play for them. So fine. Hey, man, you know, good luck to you. Hope you do well from Akron, Ohio. The best prospect to come out of uh, Akron since um, LeBron James. He's that, man. He's all that in the bag of chips. From what I've seen in highlights, he's going to be playing at Oak Hill his senior year. But he decided to go to John Calipari. All right, fine. Fine. Did you want to go ahead and do that? Fine. I mean, if I was a five-star recruit and, you know, you take a look at someone like a Patrick Ewing and you take a look at a guy who spent 18 years in the NBA as a player, one of the uh, 50 greatest basketball players who's ever played has his number retired in the uh, at Madison Square Garden for the New York Knicks. The New York Knicks haven't been shit since Patrick Ewing left. The battles that he had with Michael Jordan and such. The fact that, you know, Georgetown is a Nike school might have, uh, you know, for NIL purposes, might have, you know, might have uh, played a bigger role in his decision. But, I mean, he wanted to go to... Um, he wants to go to Lexington, Kentucky. He wants to spend a year or six months in Lexington, Kentucky, where... The people there are stupid enough to elect, elect Mitch McConnell. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to go there instead of a cosmopolitan city like Washington, D.C., the metropolitan area where, oh, as I mentioned before, is there anywhere anywhere around the University of Kentucky where you're going to find more beautiful, more intelligent, more sophisticated, more Nubian princesses like Washington, D.C. with Howard University right down the street from Georgetown? 
I mean, if you want to go to Kentucky and, you know, do that, then fine. But, you know, I will uh, bet my mortgage and I will bet everything that I have that if you're going to take a look at the more attractive young females, whether it be at Kentucky or Howard University, I'm picking Howard University eight days a week, 366 days a year, 26 hours a day. But, hey, you know what? Hey, Chris, you made your decision. You made your decision. You would think that you would go play for a coach, 15 years head coaching or assistant coaching experience at the NBA under the Van Gundy's, was coached by Pat Riley, it was you know worked under Steve Clifford. I mean, really good coaches. You, you would think that Chris would want to go ahead and take advantage of that. Penny Hardaway, I could understand if he wanted to go play for Penny Hardaway. I, I get that. If he wanted to go play for Michigan with Jawan Howard, I get that. I mean, you know, you're Chris Livingston, you're six six. Why wouldn't you want to play for Penny Hardaway? I would, you know, I, I got got that, understand that, understood that. But, you know, he decided to go play for John Calipari instead of Patrick Ewing. Okay. All right. Fine. Fine. No, no. Good good luck to you, young man. Good luck to you on the mistake that you made. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. So I mentioned before, not too much talk in the NBA. I told you, man, when I start talking about my Georgetown Hoyas, I just... I just lose all track of time, man. It's just, you know, when I start talking about, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you without some Georgetown topics to step to. Think of how many weak podcasts you slept through. Well, time's up. Sorry I kept you speaking about uh, what's going on in the world of sports. So enough of all that. The NFL week two, recording this on a Friday. Not really going to get into much of my Washington Snyder skins, 30 to 29 victory over the New York Giants. Number one, I didn't see it because where I was uh, staying last night in Mesquite, they didn't have the NFL network. <laughs> Jeez. So uh, I couldn't really have a chance to uh, take a look at that. So I'm DVR'd it. So I'm going to go ahead and watch it uh, probably tomorrow night so I can keep up with my uh, Washington football team. But, you know, good win over the Giants. One and one is better than 0 and 2, even in, in a division like the NFC least. Even after two games, 0 and 2 would not be a death nail by any stretch of the imagination. But hey, the NFL, a win is a win. Taylor Haneke came in and did well, I presume. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and leave that alone in terms of talking about that, even though we are talking about my football team, the Washington Snyder Skins, the Washington Heineke Skins, the Washington Chase Young Skins, the Washington One-in-One Skins. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So let's go ahead and talk about what's happening. Let's go ahead and talk about what's on the docket, shall we say, for Week two of the NFL, the early games, we got Cincinnati at Chicago, we have Houston at Cleveland, the Rams are visiting Indianapolis, Buffalo is going down to Miami, the Jets are going to entertain the New England Patriots, San Francisco making the cross-country trip, even though they spent the week in West Virginia, but they'll be playing the Philadelphia Eagles, and the Las Vegas Raiders are going out to Steel City to play the Pittsburgh Steelers, the late games include Minnesota at Arizona, Atlanta at Tampa Tom, and the Dallas Cowboys and the San Diego Chargers. Tennessee was going to be going to Seattle to play the Seahawks, and then the Sunday night football game, the Kansas City used to be champions playing the Baltimore Ravens. Really don't know what to make of that game when you're speaking about um, Kansas City and Baltimore, because 
if you really look at it over the past couple of years, it was, hey, one of the two elite teams of the AFC, and they're going to be battling, and two of the young, gifted quarterbacks, elite quarterbacks, franchise quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes was already there, Lamar Jackson winning an MVP and having such success early on in his career with the Baltimore Ravens, already establishing himself at the face of the franchise and winning that MVP, as I mentioned before, each year getting the Baltimore Ravens into the playoffs. So you take a look at this on paper, you would think that the Kansas City football team, one of their nemesis, one of their rivals would be the Baltimore Ravens. But uh, with these injuries that have happened with the uh, Ravens and continue to happen, especially at the running back position, I, I don't know in a situation like this and the lack of success that Baltimore has had against Kansas City, even though they're playing at home, I, I don't know how much more of a rivalry this really is or this really should be constituted as when you're speaking about Kansas City and Baltimore. Mentioned before in the game against Cleveland, Kansas City, as long as you have Patrick Mahomes, as long as you can keep him upright half the time, that uh, you're going to have a great chance to win. Lamar has not yet, Lamar not has not yet gotten to that level just yet in terms of him being able to consistently through the air get his team into a position like the uh, like Tom Brady did with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers the other night, the opening uh, game of the season against the Dallas Cowboys, like uh, you know, like Derek Carr did on Monday night against the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, Lamar hasn't gotten there just yet. I would like to see him do that more on a consistent basis. I still think that he's an exceptional quarterback. Still think Lamar is easily a top 10 quarterback, but, you know, if we're going to be talking about elevating this Kansas City Baltimore, I don't even know if you want to call it a rival. Let's say if we're going to elevate Kansas City and Baltimore to rival status, true contenders for uh, being the rival, a respected rival for the Kansas City football team, Baltimore is going to have to uh, get a get a little bit more have a little bit more success, I think, uh, through the year. Look, Lamar's never going to be Tom Brady. Lamar's never going to be that guy who's going to be standing in the pocket at the age of 32, 33. I don't know what kind of quarterback Lamar Jackson is going to be because I don't think he can ever evolve into being a true classic pocket type quarterback. He's not going to be Tom Brady. He's not going to be Drew Brees. His strength is his not only his intelligence for, for the game of football, but also his athletic gifts and his athletic ability, the ability to make something happen when uh, there's nothing going on in a positive way as far as either the passing game, running game, and such. So that's Lamar's strength right now, and he's using that He's using that youth and that athleticism to go ahead and make plays, to make amazing plays, a la Michael Vick, a la Randall Cunningham, those type of uh, quarterbacks back in the day. So as he continues to evolve as a more pocket type of quarterback, that will be great as his physical skills in the next five or six or seven years start to diminish. But as of right now, he's not at that stage yet where he can sit back, throw the ball 40, 45 times and have Baltimore, you know, give Baltimore the best chance of winning the football game, even with the uh, drafting and acquisition of uh, wide receivers. So still, when you speak of the rivals for Kansas City in the AFC, it still, I think, goes through Buffalo, despite their loss the uh, last uh, weekend, the last Sunday to the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I think Bolt, and I think uh, Cleveland, I think those two are the 
two major teams as of right now. Could change because we're only talking about two weeks into the season. But if you take a look at the totality of Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City football team and how that run started toward greatness, winning a Super Bowl, losing a Super Bowl, and making it to a Super Bowl and an AFC championship all in a three-year span, I think if you're taking a look at teams that can challenge that dynasty as of right now, week two, because of the lack of a passing game for the Baltimore Ravens, added on with the injuries of the offensive line and the running back positions and the um, cornerback positions, I would think that you would have to say that right now, the Sunday night football game between Kansas City and Baltimore is not going to be, I would say, as competitive as many people would hope it would be, even though, again, Kansas City is playing in Baltimore. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. And of course, the Monday Night Football game, Detroit at Green Bay. I will talk about that game and what Aaron needs to do in terms of is he going to uh, get back into the swing of things or is the, I don't know, him wanting to leave and being so open about it and being so honest about it, is uh, that going to prove to be a distraction for Green Bay making it to the same position they were the last two years as far as being in the championship game, the conference championship game, and then moving on and trying to win a Super Bowl, the second in the career of Aaron Rodgers. So we'll speak about that later on in the podcast. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So teams that are going to be looking to uh, bounce back they get some good action going. Many teams who I thought, many teams who you thought, many teams that your buddy thought, many teams that your wife thought, many teams that your coworker thought, many teams that the homeless guy on the street thought would be quality elite competition to win that Super Bowl, to win this upcoming Super Bowl, kind of uh, kind of slipped on the banana peel, shall I say. Kind of got gonged off the gong show in week one. The Pittsburgh Steelers. Going up the Buffalo, beating them 23-16 last Sunday. Let me ask you a question, man. What do you think? How's uh, how's Buffalo going to respond to this? Because the offense, from just taking a look at the game, I was switching to red zone and going back to Buffalo and the Steelers game while watching some of the Tennessee and, and uh, Arizona game. Yeah, I was busy. But uh, the offense, what I saw from Buffalo, they played with no rhythm. They played with no consistency. And, that, and and Josh Allen, who leading up into last season, there were questions about his accuracy. And he dispelled those, those concerns, at least for one season, when he completed almost 70% of his passes. Well, I mean, against Pittsburgh, he completed only 58%. Two touchdowns, or uh, only one touchdown, ran for 51 yards. Or excuse me, ran, or excuse me, passed for um, had fifty one pass attempts, finished with a passer rating of somewhere around eighty. Lack of offense, lack of balance on offense. Where you're speaking about Buffalo running the ball only twenty five times, passing it fifty one times, gave up a ten nothing lead at halftime, outscored twenty three to six in the second half, seventeen to six in the fourth quarter. You're speaking about a Bills offense last year that was very potent. That was very efficient, had 11 drives for the game and came away with only one touchdown. And you're speaking about missed opportunities. You're speaking about wasting great opportunities for uh, them to uh, go ahead and really put the game away. I mean, what about the opening kickoff? 
where where the Buffalo, you know, off the opening kickoff, kickoff was in the red zone right away. It didn't do anything. Had to settle for a 37-yard field goal. That's four points that was left off the table that, uh, you know, they could have had. Then around five minutes in the first quarter from their own 45-yard line, Josh Allen missed a wide-open Emmanuel Sanders. Wide-open down the sea. Would have been an easy touchdown catching. Nobody was around him. And then on the next play, that was second and 14. Then on third and 14, Sanders dropped the pass that would have given them a first down and would have continued. So the, the worst case scenario, they would have gotten themselves at least a field goal opportunity if Sanders would have caught that ball, moved the sticks, and then and left there with a penalty or a sack or something like that. Buffalo had another great opportunity to have put at the very least at least three points on the board, but I know missed opportunity as far as a touchdown pass is concerned from Allen, and then Sanders dropping the uh, third and 14 in which they had to go ahead and punt the ball. They had a drop interception, and speaking about the Bills, they had a drop interception inside the red zone. They were down 20 to 10 after they hit their, remember that time they had the, in the third quarter where they had the, the um, punt block and then returned for a TD? Well, they started to drive to the red zone after two long runs from uh, Devon Singletary, put it around the Steelers' 12-yard line, then nothing. And then did you see that third down play from the six-yard line with 6.07 left to go? A, a swing pass? A swing pass to the running back? And Pittsburgh was sitting there going, thank you. I mean, that's it's just missed opportunity after missed opportunity. Now, because of those things, I think those situations can be easily rectified. And again, we're only speaking about the first game of the season in terms of what happened. And the Steelers' defense is top-notch. So they're going up against the Miami Dolphins. They're going on the road against the Dolphins. Dolphins, I mean, can they regroup? The Dolphins were the only team in the AFC East that won uh, last Sunday, if you think about it. The offense is going to have a challenge to go up against that uh, Miami defense. But, you know, the Dolphins' defense is a bend-but-don't-break operation as they showed against the New England Patriots. You could say that they were very fortuitous in terms of uh, that fumble that uh, New England had when they were driving to take the lead. But what I mentioned before, hey, 17, uh, 16 points given up by the by the um, Miami Dolphins. Ben, but don't break defense. Tua, Tua Tungavailoa, I think, still has the training wheels on with the offense. So this is not going to be a situation where Buffalo is going to have to try to outscore them by scoring over 30 points a game. I think with the ball control that Miami has, they're just going to try to keep the ball away from the Buffalo offense, limit the amount of drive that they get in the game, and then win themselves a close game. Can Buffalo take advantage of the fact that, look, you know, I think we have a defense, and I think Miami has an offense to where once the offense for our side, Buffalo side, gets going, then, hey, we can kind of do what we did in Week 17 to the Dolphins last uh, year. But uh, we'll go ahead and see about that game. Both um, the uh, Buffalo Bills going up against the Miami Dolphins. Bills lose. They go 0-2. Still, I'm not going to uh, panic. Still, you shouldn't panic. 15 games left. As I mentioned before, you take a look at the division itself. There's no one you know, super team or two super teams where they wouldn't be able to make up a two-game lead regardless of what uh, New England does, regardless of what happens in that New England-New York Jets game. We're speaking about worst-case scenario, one of the teams in the AFC East is 2-0. 
two of the teams in the AFC East is 0-2, and then you have one that's 1-1. The margin for error is still great in terms of, hey, we're 0-2, no need to panic. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, speaking about teams that need to bounce back, speaking of teams that are supposed to be, on paper, one of the, some of the elite teams in the NFL slipping, falling, last uh, weekend, last Sunday. How are the Cleveland Browns going to respond after losing to Kansas City this past Sunday? Mentioned before the fact that if you're a glass-half-full type of guy, you can say that, hey, for the second time in a row, the Browns had a great opportunity to win the game. They had the great opportunity to beat the Kansas City football team on their own home field second time in a row. But, you know, the pessimists will say, look, man, so what? I mean, isn't this kind of a pattern? It was Kansas City's fifth straight win against Cleveland, including last season's 22-17 playoff win in January, their 15th consecutive win in September. So what are we talking about here? I mean, what what's going on here? And look, it has to be frustrating if you're a Cleveland Browns fan. And let's take a look at the glass half empty uh, ledger of this when we're speaking about, hey, man, you know, again, as I mentioned before, the fifth straight win, what is it going to take? Yeah, okay, great. Cleveland now played them in the first half. Yeah, great, fantastic. Cleveland now played them for um, a little bit, a lot of the third quarter. But when it mattered most, Kansas City got going and the Cleveland Browns got going. Kansas City got going in one direction, positive, and the Browns got going in another direction, positive. And again, you speak about, and I spoke about, and I just mentioned the fact that, hey, Kansas City's fifth straight win, including a 22-17 playoff win over January. How similar to this game, game one this past weekend between Kansas City and Cleveland, how eerily similar was it to the playoff games? At least in the playoff game last uh, season, Patrick Mahomes left the game with a concussion, was replaced by some guy named Chad Henney, and he made some plays. And when Cleveland had to make some plays in that game, they didn't. Sound familiar? With Kansas City up in the final moments of that playoff game, remember Henny with that third, 13-yard third down scramble for a first down, then on fourth down, the uh, completion to Tyreek Hill to give Kansas City a first down with over a minute left and allow them to run out the clock, get damn shoot, if you're a Cleveland Brown fan. Does it seem, does it seem similar? Do the circumstances seem similar to what happened this past Sunday, as far as what the Cleveland Browns are concerned, playing the Kansas City football team. They led 22-10 to 10 at halftime, and then were outscored 23-7 to 7 in the second half. Mayfield played great, just like he did in the playoff game. He went 21-28, 321 yards. Okay, he didn't have a touchdown, but still. When you're speaking about some of the throws that he was making, the accuracy that he was showing, the way that he was moving the ball, he played very well. The team ran the ball 26 times for 153 yards and 6 yards per carry. But mentioned before, I mean, opportunities missed. And just like what I was speaking about with Tampa Bay in Dallas, where it was like, you take a look, Dallas won the turnover. Dallas had more first downs. Dallas had more passing yards. Dallas had more uh, time of possession. Dallas had more total yards. How in the hell did Dallas lose that football game to the uh, New England Patriots? Because when New England gave them opportunities to really put the game away, Dallas didn't fully capitalize. And when you're playing against a Super Bowl champion, when you're playing against one of the elite franchises going on today, when you're playing against an all-time great like Tom Brady, you better damn well, they're going to give you opportunities to really put some space between 
themselves and yourself, you better damn sure do everything possible to make sure that Tampa Tom doesn't pull out um type of uh you know some type of drive, some type of miracle, some type of fantastic add on to his legend, add on to the uh aura type of uh situation. And Dallas leaving points on the board, Dallas not taking advantage of situations, Dallas not taking advantage of turnovers, Dallas not taking advantage of possible turnovers from Tampa Bay when they needed it down the stretch gave Tampa Bay the opportunity to kick that field goal and win that game. Same thing with Kansas City. Man, you can't be giving Patrick Mahomes, you can't be giving Patrick Mahomes opportunity at all in a situation like this. So when you take a look at the miscues that happened, especially in the fourth quarter with the Cleveland Browns going up against the Kansas City football team, yeah, that might work against Jacksonville. Yeah, that might work against Miami. Yeah, that might work against the uh, the Washington football team. Yeah, that might work against some other folks, but that ain't going to work against Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City football team. It ain't going to work in the regular season. It ain't going to work in the preseason. Damn sure ain't going to work in the playoffs. So mistakes that were made by Cleveland in the fourth quarter, the low snap, the punter, Jamie Gillian, who couldn't handle it, gave Kansas City field position in the, in the red zone. You don't think, you, you really don't think that Kansas City was going to pass up on an opportunity to take advantage of that, right? Well, they didn't. Mahomes threw a quick touchdown pass to Travis Kelsey, gave Kansas City the lead 33-29 after Cleveland made a stop, the force, the punt to give Cleveland the ball back at the Cleveland 17-yard line at, with 2.49 left to go. Remember, both uh, Miles Garrett and D- D- Davion Clowney met uh, Patrick Mahomes in the backfield on third down. You're thinking to yourself, all right, here we go. Well, with a minute 16 left to go, Mayfield threw an interception at the Cleveland 48. Ball game, thanks for coming. Oh, and because of the missed opportunities, 33-29. Wasn't 33-30. Wasn't a situation where they just needed a field goal to kick the game, and maybe that would have... Uh, made a difference as far as the play calling is concerned and some of the opportunities or some of the uh, situations that Mayfield felt that he needed to make. The pass that he threw was, they said that he was trying to throw it out of bounds. It was an error. It was a foolish pass. But, you know, if they're only down by two or if they're only down by three, and it's like instead of needing to go another 52 yards to uh, win this football game, I only need to go another 32 yards or 22 yards, and I got a minute 16 left to go, well, then maybe my decision to throw that pass might have been a little bit different to give my squad another opportunity to go ahead and try to win this football game, but it didn't. Fifth straight win for the Kansas City football team, and we're moving on. So they should get some confidence. Speaking of Cleveland here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace, speaking about the Cleveland Browns and how they're going to rebound, how are they going to get back after a disappointing loss, the opening week of the NFL season for them. They should get some of their confidence and swagger back with the beatdown of the Houston Texans this season's everybody's um, homecoming game. So I'm not really too... um, I'm really not too distressed on that. If we're speaking about, man, how should we look at the Cleveland Browns? Should we be upset, glass half full, glass half empty? I still think Cleveland is going to be just fine. I think still Cleveland, I think that they're getting closer. I'm not one of those where it's like, well, you know, once it gets to a certain situation in the game that, you know, what Cleveland's going to find a way to blow a game. I think the more that they play, I think the closer that Cleveland's going to get to finally get them. And the next time they play is in the playoffs. Could that be the time? If that opportunity exists in terms of Kansas City and Cleveland playing in the uh, playoffs, 
would that now be the time for Cleveland to finally get over that hump and solve some of the situations that have befuddled them, that has caused them to to come up shorthanded against the Kansas City football team. We will see. We will see. Early on, though, it's only two weeks. I'm already speaking about the playoffs. Stop it. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Them Dallas Cowboys, those Dallas Cowboys. How about them Dallas Cowboys? After losing in the last seconds to the defending champions, the Tampa Tom Buccaneers, going to be playing on the road against the L.A. Chargers. So you go from Tom Brady to start the season to Justin Herbert on the coast in week two. That should be a good game. I'm interested to see Ezekiel Elliott. I'm interested to see if Dallas can now have some more balance on offense. As well as Dak Prescott played, I don't care if he's coming off of a a season-ending ankle injury, and I don't care what the status of his shoulder is as far as how hurt or how limited it is in terms of his strength and and mobility and that type of things. Hey, man, and, and, and I don't care if you're Patrick Mahomes. I don't care if you're Tom Brady. I don't care if Sean Watson is playing. I don't care if you're one of the elite quarterbacks. I don't care if you're Aaron Rodgers. You you can't be throwing the ball 58 times. Well, Wendell, they almost won the game against the defending Super Bowl champions, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. What are you talking about? That formula is not going to last. You cannot have Dak Prescott throw the ball 50 to 55 times a game. Hell, you can't have any quarterback in this league throw the ball 50 to 55 times a game or 58 times like Prescott did on Thursday, this uh, Thursday against the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers to start the NFL season. You can't do that. You can't do that, especially as I mentioned before. The man just came off an ankle injury, still trying to get himself in football shape. The only way you get yourself in football shape is playing in the football game. So I don't care how many burpees. I don't care how much time he put in as far as getting himself physically ready to play. You're talking about a guy who hadn't played football before that first game in Tampa Bay. They hadn't played, or Dak Prescott hadn't played, in almost a year. So for him to go out and throw 58 passes like that and have that much responsibility on his shoulders was impressive. It really speaks loudly to the core, the kind of quarterback that Dak Prescott is right now and what they're asking him to do with responsibilities, responsibilities and his, his, his meaning to the team. But gee, man, you have another guy, I think his name is Ezekiel Elliott, who, I don't know, a couple of years ago, the rumors was that he was a really fine running back. Now that he was one of the better quarter, uh, running backs in the league. Well, what happened? 33 yards on 11 carries against Tampa Bay. Now, you can sit there and say, well, you know, because of the game plan and because of the formations and what Tampa Bay was trying to do and they were trying to stop the run and blah, blah, blah. Man, it can't be that simple, man. You, you, it just can't be that. Every team is going to try to take the running game away from the Dallas Cowboys. So what? So to counter that, you're just going to have Dak Prescott just go back 50 times a game in every single game? You need to establish that running game if you are the Dallas Cowboys so you can do some more play-action work so the offense can be more balanced and you can become more dangerous. And more importantly, you can keep Prescott fresh, fresher, healthier, and less susceptible to injury. That's the reason why you need to go ahead and establish that running game. I'm very interested also with the Cowboys to see if that defense can play as well as it did. Now you can sit there and say, well, you know, when they needed to make a stop, they didn't make a stop. Well, again, we're playing, you're playing on the road against Tampa Bay. So how many teams have Tom Brady, even at the age of 44, 
um, at their disposal. Uh, only one, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So going up against the San, uh, against the San Diego Chargers, how about that? Going up against the LA Chargers, I'm interested to see, hey, how is this going to work as far as the Dallas Cowboys defense is concerned? So that'll be an interesting thing for me to uh, take a look at. And again, playing in the NFC East, NFC least, it's a situation where, hey man, you know, the Cowboys start 0-2. I still think they have the best, um, they got the best quarterback in the division. So when that happens, 15 more games to go, regardless of how they look against the Chargers on the West Coast this Sunday. I think moving forward, glass half full for the Dallas Cowboys in terms of their success winning their division opportunity to make the playoff. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So now we get to the Green Bay Packers. How in the world are them boys going to respond on Monday night against the Detroit Lions after that 38-3 embarrassment against the New Orleans Saints? You know, it was a situation everybody wants to sit there and talk about, well, you know, what's the, what's the situation with Aaron Rodgers and this Aaron Rodgers situation, the last dance deal where, you know, he's, He's dead set on not returning to the Packers and going somewhere else. How much of that is a distraction? How much did that play? How committed he is to the team? All all of this stuff. Hey, look, man, against New Orleans, everybody, everybody, everybody associated with the Green Bay Packers was responsible for that putrid in that performance against New Orleans. On defense, the first uh, three drives for New Orleans, they went for a combined 39 plays, chewed up almost 22 minutes at the clock, which resulted in 17 points. Bingo, you allowed James Flippin Wilson, Winston, not James, not, not just James Wilson, but also James Winston to complete almost 70% of his 20 passes and throw for five touchdowns without sacking him once. You allowed New Orleans to go seven of 12 on third and fourth down convergence. Unacceptable, inexcusable. Yes, the offense was an embarrassment. Yes, Aaron Rodgers looked disconnected and discontent near the end of that football game. Yes, Aaron Rodgers near the end threw some I don't give a fuck anymore type of throws. But damn, man, if the defense is going to play like that, I don't I don't kind of blame him. Because how much of a chance are you giving Aaron Rodgers? Wasn't that the uh, main critique? Wasn't that the main complaint with Aaron Rodgers? The fact that I don't have the type of uh, weapons, I don't have the type of offensive machinery that uh, Tampa Bay has and the way that the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers organization went out and got Tom Brady everything that he wanted in terms of weapons, in terms of wide receivers, and what are you doing for me? You ain't getting me shit because of what? Because of why? Then you draft Jordan Love. So instead of giving me a wide receiver, you're not going to do anything. Then you go ahead and draft some defensive players, which give up five touchdown passes to Jameis Winston, and it's like, oh, don't worry about it. Good old A.A. Ron Rodgers will bail us out. Man, screw that. That's the reason why I want to go to Denver. That's the reason why I was yearning to go to San Francisco. So, look, the defense needs to, uh, the defense needs to uh, be held accountable for that train wreck of a performance that was on Sunday, this past Sunday, against the... New Orleans Saints and on offense for the uh, Packers. Look, Aaron Rodgers, 15 to 28, 133 yards. That's five yards per pass. No touchdowns, two interceptions. Quarterback rating of 37. Words speak for itself. No way to sugarcoat that. The team rushed for 43 yards on 15 carries. That's three yards per carry. 
They went three for 13 on third and fourth downs. One of 10 on third downs. That's that's not going to get it done. So we're sitting here and we're saying, well, what's wrong with the Packers? What's going on with the Packers? What's going to be happening with the Packers? What's the long-term effect of everything that went down in the offseason with the Packers? I'm not ready to uh, throw dirt on the championship aspirations and chances of the Green Bay Packers, of Aaron Rodgers in the Green Bay Packers, even if this is the last hurrah for the Packers. I'm not saying that they're the leading contenders to win the Super Bowl, especially after that performance. I can't even look. I can't even look that far down the road, man, to be speaking about, you know, who's going to be playing in the Super Bowl and all that type of nonsense. Whether the Packers looked awesome and blew out the Saints or what happened on Sunday. Too early in the season for me to go into all that nonsense. But whether the Packers do great or whether the Packers do terrible is not going to be because Aaron Rodgers came out and and went full diva on the organization and on the franchise this uh, past offseason. You have to remember, as I mentioned before, man, this is the NFL. And how many times in the NFL over the years, how many times, I mean, how many years, how many decades have you been watching the NFL? And if you go back, look at look at this, uh, you go back, go on YouTube and take a look at the uh, America's Game. It's a real, it's the NFL Network uh, presentation production. And they talk about the season of the team that won the Super Bowl. I've watched the uh, two seasons that the Green Bay Packers won it. And then I saw the one on the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. And then the one on the um, uh, Baltimore Colts. And the one on the Dallas Cowboys. And and so on and so forth. And the one thing that was always uh, there when we were speaking about the season was they faced some type of tumult. They faced some type of turmoil. They went on losing streaks. They played horribly. They got blown out. They had to have players meeting. There was time where people were downing them. They were there were there were points in the season where it looked like they weren't doing anything. But then they turned it around and won a championship. So just because the Packers lost thirty eight to three and in such embarrassing fashion, I'm not going to uh, start writing the, their obituary for the 2021 season based on that, especially when you have someone like Aaron Rodgers, and especially when you have evidence, recent evidence of of uh, Green Bay laying an egg and still making it to the NFC Championship game. Does anybody remember last season where they lost to Tampa Bay 38-10, to where they came into that game undefeated, and they were physically manhandled, beat up, thrown around, embarrassed, had their lunch money taken, bullied, kicked, around remember that Aaron Rodgers went 16 for 35 160 yards no touchdowns two interception one return for a touchdown that really swung the game into uh, Tampa Bay's favor gave them that momentum was sacked four times and basically was just beat to a pulp to where he was benched in the fourth quarter the team had 201 total yards and only 13 touchdowns remember that remember that embarrassment and I was speaking and you were speaking and we were speaking and the uh, clown on the uh, Skip and Shannon show and the Mike Greenberg show and all the other shows were sitting there talking about what's wrong with the Green Bay Packers? What's wrong with the Green Bay Packers? What's wrong with the Green Bay Packers? I told you. I told you their undefeated record was uh, bullshit. I told you. I told you. Well, turns out after uh, another skid in the game after they won in the game after the Tampa Bay game, they were, I think, four and two or something like that. They had lost two of their last three and then they turned it back on. To where they made it to the NFC Championship game. So what I'm trying to say is whether it was the 1978 Pittsburgh Steelers, whether it was the 1977 Dallas Cowboys, whether it was the 19, 
Well, except except well except for the 1972 uh, Miami Dolphins in the 2000 and what was that 2007? When did New England go undefeated throughout the regular season? With the exception of those two teams, every team that had a highly successful season and made it to the Super Bowl, won the Super Bowl, got to the Super Bowl. Uh, all of those guys had some type of adversity during the regular season. So for the Green Bay Packers, you could just say that some of the nonsense, at least they got their blowout, at least they got their embarrassment, at least they got their one lay in a game of the year out of the way in week one instead of, say, the first round of the playoffs. So Aaron Rodgers in games after losses in 2019, you know what he is? 6-0, and completion percentage of 68%, 252 passing yards per game, 16 touchdowns, no interception, and a passer rating of 120. Aaron Rodgers is going to be fine. Aaron Rodgers is going to be fine. Aaron Rodgers will be just fine. So those are just some of the things that I'm thinking about. Those are just some of the things that I'm looking at. Those are just, ooh, there's a commercial for Bianca Belair. Boy, man, that is. You know what? Before I go to break, this is just going to be thrown out to all my my wrestling homeboys, special dedication going out to Armando Vasquez here. Like, let me ask you something, man. If you watch SmackDown, which I do sometimes off and on, why is it that when her husband, Bianca Belair, when her husband with the Street Profits is getting beat up, why doesn't she run out and save him? <laughs> why doesn't she? Or when um, Sasha Banks and the, were, were putting a beat down on Bianca Belair, someone that beautiful, the mother of my kids, wh- where is that guy? Why is he not running down to the ring to help her out? Hey, man, you know what? In certain situations, almost there's no reason, there's no explanation, there's no excuse for a man to ever physically put his hands on a woman, ever, with the exception of my life is in danger, or if I don't put my hands on her, she's going to do some real harm to my children or my baby or my elderly parents or my elderly grandparents, like... Like, my loved one's lives are in danger. Their physical health is in danger. Okay, then you then you grab that bitch and you try to do everything that you can to uh, make sure she don't inflict no pain or something like that. But, 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 in a situation like this, you have Carmella, the most gorgeous female in WWE, according to her. You have Carmella and you have, uh, oh, who's that woman? Uh, Selena Vega and you have all these females up there, you know, you know, beating up on poor Bianca Belair and her husband's just sitting in the background, just uh, sitting in the back, just just chilling. Shit. Shit. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Belair. My fat, pathetic, old, out of shape ass would run down there. And man, I tell you, if someone would do, if you were with me, you think that I would let them females beat you up like that? You think at that contract signing that Sasha Banks with those two goons Carmella and Selena would have done that to you. You think I would just would have been sitting back there as she stood over holding your belt, talking about, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, knowing that she wouldn't show up? Man, I would have ran down there, man, and I would have grabbed her something. Okay, never mind. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So that's what I'm talking about, getting back to football, Jack. Getting football, getting back to football, my man. Some good things happening in the NFL. I think the teams... The elite teams, the championship contending teams, the team with the most talent on paper, all of them things, all of those situations in terms of Cleveland, in terms of Green Bay, in terms of Buffalo. Yeah, they lost in week one, but I think starting in week two, I'm going to think that revenge will be best served with a W. That W means win. 
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your man, just a man that's on the mic, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things getting down on the World of Sports. Still thinking about uh, Bianca Bell. <laughs> Poor Bianca Belair up there getting her ass whooped and how uh, she got screwed by Bre- Becky Lynch and her husband, Mon- Montrez Ford, is just up there, you know, kicking back, chilling in the back. Montrez, your wife is getting her ass kicked. Getting her ass kicked. Oh, she can handle it. Man. I know that he's still, you know, I mean, him and him and his homeboy got to, has been getting their asses whooped by uh, Otis uh, the last couple of weeks when I've been watching it. But uh, yeah, man, I mean, that's your wife, Montrez. Come on now. I mean, she's way too young for me. But in terms of anybody was messing around with my girlfriend, Ty Connie, over in AEW, shoot, forget that. And the sexy Jade Cargill, I want them shoulders and I want them biceps. I want, I want them biceps and I want them back. Back uh, arms. Good Lord have mercy. That woman is something else. So going to be interesting. I'm recording this on a Friday. And uh, so that means I'm going to be watching. Um, I watch a little bit of. Um, I watch a little bit of Smackdown tonight. and But I want to watch the uh, Rampage AEW. Because that card is going to be stacked. And then they got Kenny Omega and Brian Danielson fighting next Wednesday. I, I love it. Absolutely love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And special dedication, big ups to Biggie Langston taking the uh, taking the championship belt, cashing in the money in the bank on Monday against uh, Bobby uh, Bobby Lashley. I like Lashley as champ because MVP got to do most of the talking. I think as far as Paul Heyman and MVP is concerned, they have two really good managers talkers uh, for the champions on their respective. Uh, broadcast on their respective uh, wrestling shows. Now that Big E is the champion, it was interesting to see exactly where they're going to be placing Bobby Lashley, where he goes from there. I thought, he, as I mentioned before, he did really good at the champion. I would like to see Big E get a clean victory over Bobby Lashley sometime down the road to really establish him as the Raw WWE champion and then start off a really strong uh, title run for him. So we can maybe at maybe at WrestleMania have something in terms of uh, Roman Reigns versus Biggie. I would rather see that than Roman Reigns versus a 50-year-old 50, 50 Rock who, you know, who's a movie star, but he's no longer a full-time wrestler. I'm not really interested in that. How did they get on to wrestling anyway? I digress. Wendell Wyatt, that's what I was thinking about. Uh, I was thinking about my girlfriends, Ty Connie and uh, Jay Cargill and uh, the one and only Bianca Belair. That's the reason why I got sidetracked to that. But now I'm back. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about what's happening in the NFL. Speaking about what's going to be going on in week two of the NFL. Talked about some of the teams that had high, that had high expectations to do some things but uh, did not perform the way they thought they were. 
no need to panic with those guys. Those guys are going to be just fine. Some other teams that I'm going to be interested in, I talked about the opening early games in the NFL this upcoming Sunday, talked about the late games this upcoming Sunday. One of the teams that I'm going to be interesting to, interested to see if they can build on their success and, and impressive play from week one. Jalen Hurts and the Philadelphia Eagles. Can they continue what they started against the Atlanta Falcons this Sunday? Now, look, I know that we're speaking about Atlanta here, but then again, it's only one game. How bad is Atlanta supposed to be? How putrid is Atlanta supposed to be? How much should we put into the performance that Hurts and the Philadelphia Eagles had in that 32-6 victory if Atlanta just bottoms out and they finish four and thirteen, or they finish somewhere three and you know two and fifteen, or some nonsense like that. I mean, we're gonna look back on that look back on that game and say, ah, big fucking deal. But Hertz was impressive: twenty-seven of thirty-five, two hundred and fifty-four yards, three touchdowns, and seventy-seven percent completion percentage. This past Sunday, it was the highest ever by an Eagles QB on opening day, with a minimum of ten attempts. The previous high was Donovan McNabb's. 72% against the Giants in 2004, and 13 of Hertz completions came and went for first down. And did I mention that he also had seven rushes for 62 yards? But still, I think Hertz and the Eagles have something to prove. Not only did they play a game against a team in Atlanta that really doesn't have any expectations, I think Hertz is still on the end of he's still trying to prove if he can be a viable uh, quarterback in the NFL. I mentioned before, if he continues to perform like he has, I mean, you take a look at the quarterbacks in the NFC least and you say, okay, Dak Prescott and who else? You got to have a number two by default, right? And if you had your choice, if you're a fan of the New York Giants, if you're a fan of the Washington Snyder Skins, if you're a fan of the um, uh, Dallas Dallas, Philadelphia, Giants, and... Okay, so if you're a fan of the Eagles, if you're a fan of Washington, if you're a fan of the Giants, and you had your choice of, you know, Taylor Heineke, Daniel Jones, or Jalen Hurts, I'm, I'm not saying it's unanimous, but how many people are going to sit there and roll their eyes and yell insults at you and say that you're crazy if you say out of those three, I would uh, pick Jalen Hurts regardless if I was a fan of Washington, Philadelphia, or the Giants. So I think move down the line. We, we, we see, and I mentioned this in my last podcast, I see a lot of Dak Prescott as far as leadership ability with Jalen Hurts. And if you're speaking about, hey man, when you're speaking about a quarterback, and you're speaking about a quarterback who's going to be a franchise quarterback, and, and, and remember, when you're speaking about a quarterback in football, especially in a town, in a city, where they value where they have such a passionate uh, fervor for their football team like the Philadelphia community has with his Eagles, their relationship that they have with their Eagles, being the star football quarterback, being the star football player of that team, that holds a lot of sway. That holds a lot of importance. You know, we're not speaking about the hot goalie in the NHL. You know, we're not speaking about the the, the striker in the MLS. That's soccer for all of y'all who don't understand. You know, we're, we're not speaking about something of, of, of not that much interest when you put it up to some of the other professional sports that are being played in this country. So if you're speaking about the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles and the history of the Philadelphia Eagles and the passion that these fans have for the Philadelphia Eagles and how, I don't know, I'm not going to use the term rough. That's a little bit too rough. But, you know, how 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? How passionate they can be one way or the other and running hot, running cold on their emotions toward a quarterback, you realize, man, that if you're going to be a quarterback of the, Phil- of the Philadelphia Eagles, you're going to be a starting quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles, you got to have some tough skin. You got to have some maturity. You got to have some confidence in yourself. You got to have some strong moral fiber because this is the city that uh, is going to uh, come after you if you do not perform. You know, they're not, they're not going to be waiting a long time if you're not going to be able to perform. So you have to have high confidence in yourself. You have to, you know, you have to exude that to your teammates and to your coaching staff and to the fan base. And most importantly, you're going to have to perform. And with Jalen Hurts, one of the things that are right off the bat, he's not going to be swayed. He's not going to lose his confidence because he gets booed if he's getting bad. He's not going to be sitting there and have his game be affected by what people say on WIP and some of the other things in terms of uh, local media and local radio and blogs and those type of things. He has the moral fiber. He has the moral character that's similar to Dak Prescott, which is one of the reasons why Dak Prescott, I think, is going to be able to uh, survive and thrive at the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, arguably one of the highest positions, most visible positions, most impactful divisions in sports in this country, regardless of baseball, football, basketball, hockey, and such. So I think as far as the mental makeup that Jalen Hurts has, I think that he's built for Philadelphia. Now let's see what he can do to build his game. Mental makeup, there. The intelligence, there. Leadership, there. Now, what about his game? And I think that um, even though he had a very productive week one against the Falcons, I think in terms of folks who know the game, the scouts and others, I think there's still a lot to prove on what kind of a quarterback he is and what kind of quarterback he's going to be. ESPN analyst, you see him on the uh, Mike Greenberg show in the morning, and former NFL GM Mike Tannenbaum. This guy came up with his own quarterback power rankings. It was based on last week's performance and where they project over a few years and, and all that type of the rigmarole. Now, you could say, yeah, Wendell, did you notice you said former GM? Thank you. But he's still a GM. He still knows more about football. He still knows more about the quarterback position. He still knows more about scouting, player evaluations and such. More than me, more than you, 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 combined times 10. So... Tannenbaum went ahead, put together this uh, ranking of where the quarterbacks are, not just based on this past uh, week, but also moving forward a couple of years down the line and such. Yes, Jalen Hurts ranked 21st. He's ranked, he ranked him, uh, um, behind Jameis Winston, Joe Burrow, 40, 39-year-old Ben Roethlisberger, Mac Jones, Carson Wentz. He, he ranked them below the guy that Philadelphia traded that got out of town so he could become the starting quarterback. The only quarterbacks of any significance that are ranked below Jalen Hurts are Daniel Jones, Teddy Bridgewater, and Kirk Cousins, and those type of quarterbacks. I don't know how Kirk Cousins got back there, but all right. So look, against Atlanta, some of the warts, some of the hold-ons, some of the wait-a-minute, some of the, hey, man, before we go dancing on the ceiling like... Uh, Lionel Richie and dancing in the street like streets like Martha and the Vandellas to the Boogaloo and to the Funky Chicken and doing the James Brown. Before we go ahead and start doing that down Broad Street because of the game that Hurts had against the Atlanta Falcons. Hold on for a second. You realize that the majority of his pass attempts came at a league low three and a half yards per pass, right? Again, we're speaking about a team also that was 
playing against the Atlanta Falcons. Many people, I guess in the article that I read, when you're starting to evaluate quarterbacks is the fact that, hey, man, look, you know, we value um, yards per pass just as much as we value completion percentage. So 3.4 yards per pass, and that was a league low, kind of get some red flags. And then you sit there and you talk about how small the guy is, how short he is, and you say, yeah, well, Drew Brees and Russell Wilson, well, I mean, are we starting to compare Jalen Hurts to Drew Brees and Russell Wilson already? I'm sorry, Drew Brees is one of the greatest quarterbacks of his generation, and Russell Wilson is on his way to becoming a Hall of Fame quarterback. We're already, all, we're already with less than 10 games under his belt started, going to put Jalen Hurts in that category? Slow down for a minute. Against San Francisco, look, he'll have his opportunities this Sunday. The, the, the 49ers secondary is going to be weakened because Jason Verrett, their starting quarterback, he got injured and he's out for the year with a torn ACL. Their other starting quarterback, Emmanuel Mosley, he missed a last week game, last week's game with injury. So we don't know how close to 100% or 80% or 70% that he's going to be. And if you take a look at the rest of the secondary, it's below average. And also, if you're speaking about, yeah, Nick Bosa came back and he had a pretty decent game against um, Detroit and San Francisco still has a pretty solid front four as far as defense is concerned. But this is not the same San Francisco 49ers defense that it was a few years ago, not just in terms of the front four, even though they are still formidable, but also, as I mentioned before, in the secondary. The loss of Jason Verrett, Emmanuel Mosley coming back from injury, uh, Richard Sherman still trying to pound on knock, pound on doors and knock down his family's doors to try to get in to do whatever, whatever. He's dealing with his own stuff. So this is going to be another test. Test for, I, wouldn't, I, I don't know if you would call it respect, so to speak, but just the journey to figure out exactly what kind of quarterback Jalen Hurts is going to be moving forward. This is not going to give us a tall tale sign. This is not going to give us anything definitive uh, because, again, two games into the season, let's kind of get a little bit more of a sample size, like, I don't know, another 15 games before we start, you know, making a definitive statement on what type of quarterback Jalen Hurts is going to be, franchise, backup, winning, whatever, average, whatever. So how many years does it take Josh Allen to uh, finally become a franchise quarterback and make that $236, $238 million extension, give him that $238 million extension? Sometimes it happens sooner rather than later with these guys. You get the reps, you get the experience, you get the uh, offensive uh, coordinator and such to uh, build a relationship on that's uh, comfortable, that you're comfortable with. You learn, you grow, osmosis just by taking snaps and playing the games. Let's see... Let's give Jalen Hurts some time. Let's see where he's going. As I mentioned before in last week's uh, podcast, he's working with a younger group of receivers while in, uh, and running back. So let's see where this goes before we start making anything in terms of you know definitive comments and statements about what kind of quarterback Jalen Hurts is. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Another quarterback, I think, even though he started uh, the majority or all the games last year when he was healthy, Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals. I'm interested to see if Murray, and especially that Cardinals defense, is going to continue to play at such a high level than it did uh, last week at Tennessee. They're going to be at home to play Minnesota. I mentioned before, 
last week, that beatdown that they gave Tennessee physically manhandled them, physically beat them up. Chandler Jones destroyed the entire Tennessee offensive line with five sacks, most of them coming against poor left tackle Taylor Lewan, who at one point was one of the elite left tackles in the league, or at least was a very strong left tackle in the league. J.J. Watt also had a strong game against Tennessee, one of the reasons why Chandler Jones was able to get to the quarterback as many times as he could. Now, when you're speaking about that defense for Arizona, how are they going to do against the Minnesota Viking team that had Kirk Cousins throw a drop back 49 times, 49 pass attempts against Cincinnati? And we're not speaking about the mobility and the scrambling ability and the athletic ability of someone like a Lamar Jackson, someone like a Russell Wilson, someone like a Josh Allen. We're speaking about we're speaking about the more classic pocket passer in Kirk Cousins. So if he's going to be going back to throw that many times, how many sacks is Chandler Jones and how many how, how uh, big of an impact is J.J. Watt going to have if that's going to be the case with the game plan in Minnesota, because it's very interesting. Yeah, Dalvin Cook, you think that um, you would kind of try to balance out that offense, especially in a game against Cincinnati where it wasn't a, you know, there was no time in the game where you felt that um, all of a sudden Minnesota had to abandon the running game because of the difference in scores or something like that. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. On offense, Kyler Murray against uh, Tennessee went 21 or 32. 289 yards, four touchdowns, ran for a touchdown, four touchdown passes, three coming on third down, making the important throw at the important time. Also, one thing that was very important that I saw in terms of watching some of the game and also afterwards taking a look at some of the uh, statistics, he ran the ball, speaking to Kyler Murray, ran the ball only five times and not too many design play calling uh, quarterback runs. Thank you very much, Cliff Kingsbury, very important for the Cardinals if they're going to win the majority of their games that they're supposed to win. Um, Kyler Murray needs to be on the field. The way that offense is constructed, it is for Kyler Murray and Kyler Murray only for his unique skill set. There is no other guy that you can plug in if something happens to Kyler Murray to keep the boat afloat. There is no dominant running game that they can use. Maybe the defense can win you a game or two if they're going to play like they did against Tennessee, if that's going to be the way the defense is. But no, with that offense, it's all about Kyler Murray doing Kyler Murray things. It's all about Kyler Murray bailing out Cliff Kingsbury a lot on offense. So if you're going to have this guy running around, taking hits, regardless if he slides or if he's running out of bounds or such, man, I'm not saying that all of a sudden he needs to be Drew Brees. I'm not saying that he had to be Tom Brady. I'm not saying that he had to be Drew Bledsoe back in the day. But damn, man, I mean, some of these design plays and some of these design run calls that uh, Kingsbury has been calling for Kyler Murray, no, 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 no. Especially if you want to have some success and based off of week one, based off of week one only, it looks like the NFC West is going to be the toughest division in football. And you've got San Francisco with a strong defense. You've got... The Rams with Aaron Donald up front. You got Seattle, who looks like their Legion of Boom, the new version, looks like it's going to be one that's going to be acceptable if you're going to be competing for championships. All of those teams looked impressive in week one. And if you take a look at Arizona's next seven games after Minnesota, at Jacksonville, at the Rams, San Francisco, at Cleveland, Houston, 
Green Bay and then at San Francisco. We need Kyler Murray. We don't need him nicked. We don't need him dinged. We don't need him less than, you know, what he's already going to be just by playing football. He's not going to be 100%. I'm quite sure he's not 100% now. But um, any chance that we can get to where we can, you know, not give him the opportunity to get hit, pushed, slam, whatever, tackled, whatever, I think it would be a good deal. Because again, Jacksonville, the Rams, San Francisco, Cleveland, Houston, Green Bay, San Francisco, glass half empty guy, their record could be four and five. Glass half full guy, they could be seven and two by them. So keep Kyler Murray as healthy as possible. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, New Orleans. New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans. Jameis Winston and the New Orleans Saints playing on the road against Carolina this Sunday. Man, you know, you take a look at him. You know, one thing that we're kind of forgetting with New Orleans, and again, it's only one game. So before we start, you know, printing out tickets and trying to find the uh, parade route down Bourbon Street, let's just kind of slow our roll a little bit. And before we start uh, talking about, you know, is Jameis Winston now a better fit for the Saints than Drew Brees ever was. Before we start going down that road, let's just kind of remember it's one game. And they took advantage of a lackluster, non-focused, bad performance by the Green Bay Packers. Going on the road against Carolina, we'll see. But, you know, they've had to overcome some obstacles already when you're speaking about the Saints. We kind of forget, because of Hurricane Ida, this has been an, this has been a non-traditional uh, period of time as far as a football team is concerned and their routine as such for the New Orleans Saints. They've been training in Texas, as I mentioned before, because of the hurricane. Half of the offensive coaching staff is in isolation after testing positive for COVID-19 against the uh, Packers. You had three more starters that had uh, that are going to miss some time because of injuries. When you're speaking about defensive end Marcus Davenport, center Eric McCoy and cornerback Marshawn Lattimore, one of the better cornerbacks in the league. They're expected to miss multiple games with injury. You're still missing Michael Thomas. He's out with a foot injury. We don't know. He's going. To, he's on the unable to perform list, so that's six games that he's going to be out. But uh, yet and still, Sean Payton, you know, who, who made the team? I guess, you know, it was almost similar to the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady. Who was more responsible for the success of the dynasty that was the New England Patriots? Was it Tom Brady or was it Bill Belichick. Now we're starting to hear some. Now with Drew Brees gone, we're going to finally figure out if Sean Payton can coach because how much of the success in the offense of genius that was labeled to Sean Payton due to the fact that he had Drew Brees on the team or is Sean Payton all that and a bag of chips when it comes to being an offensive guy? Despite the evidence we saw when Brees had gone out and Teddy Bridgewater came in and went undefeated while uh, he was starting quarterback. Winston came in, Tayshon Hill came in, and the offense, while not as proficient and deadly as when Drew Brees was under center, was still competent enough to continue to win games and to have success. Well, against Green Bay, again, 38-3, fantastic performance on both sides of the ball. We focused on the offense, but hey, that defense took the will, the fight, the heart, the reasons to compete out of the Green Bay Packers. Had Aaron Rodgers at the end of the game just going, fuck it, I'm done, I'm out, get me out of here. They sacked him four, They sacked uh, Rodgers twice, hit him seven times, forced three interceptions. As I mentioned before, one, I don't give a fuck uh, interception at the end of the game on offense. They were balanced, 
They were efficient, 322 total yards, 7 to 12, third and fourth downs, 22 first downs, 10 of those passing, 11 of those rushing. So you see the balance right there. Relied on a running attack, 39 carries for 171 yards. So yeah, Jameis Winston, we're not going to see risk it or biscuit Jameis Winston on the regular for the New Orleans Saints. We're going to see more game manager, a better version of Alex Smith type of play out of Jameis Winston. Something similar to say, for instance, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is doing over in San Francisco. Because with the running game, as I mentioned before, 171 yards, 39 carries. Alvin Kamara had 83 yards. Tony Jones Jr., nice compliment, 50 yards. Three drives that started in the first half, consumed nearly 22 minutes, produced 17 points. And because of that, Jameis Winston only needs to throw the ball 21 times. If we can keep Jameis somewhere around that ratio, 21, 26, 27 times, that means that the running game is working. That means that the defense is uh, doing its job. And we don't need to have all of a sudden Jameis Winston you know, go back and have memories of what it was in Tampa Bay. Now, I'm there, there will come a point during the season, long season, 16 more games to go, where they are going to have, on multiple occasions, I think, where they're going to ask Jameis Winston to go out and win a game for him. Maybe not do it for four quarters, but there might come a situation where it's like, hey, look, man, you know, um, you got to go ahead, you know, for this fourth quarter, we, we need you. We need you to all of a sudden start putting the ball in the air. You know, we're in some trouble right now. You know, they're keying up on a run, and you need to start making some plays. So we're going to put the trust and responsibility into your hands to go out and stabilize this offense or go out and uh, do what you need to do to keep us in the ball game at least till halftime so we can make some adjustments. There are going to be some games where Jameis Winston is going to throw 35 to 40 times a game. Now, how many times is he going to do that? What are going to be the situations for him to do that? Varied. But those things are going to happen. So, look, the 14 of 21, 148 yards, five touchdowns, great, awesome, wonderful, fantastic. Let's see you do not five touchdowns again type of deal, but let's see what we can do to zero interceptions. Let's see what we can do more importantly on offense to continue that balance. I think when James Winston was like, let's win the game on steroids, that's where he threw 33 touchdowns and 30 interceptions. I think that was, you know, some of the words like that was just completely ridiculous. What James Winston was being asked to do for Tampa Bay that season, I think that was only, I think that was only left to the elite of the elite quarterbacks in the league. Very few could have succeeded with the expectations and the amount of responsibility that Jameis Winston was asked that year for uh, Tampa Bay with Bruce Arians and um, and the offensive coordinator, Byron Lefwich. So I think a toned down, modified Jameis Winston where he's somewhere between what he was in Tampa Bay and what he is right now, I think a little bit higher. I think that's going to be probably the sweet spot for Jameis Winston and the New Orleans Saints moving forward. So this week two in the NFL, man, it's it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a barn burner, it's gonna be a humdinger, it's gonna be a hootenanny, it's gonna be all those things. 
You ready for uh, this Sunday? You got your chips, you got your sandwiches, you've got your sodas, you got your beer, you've got your alcoholic, other alcoholic beverages, you got your jerseys ready, you got the couch ready, you've got uh, your boys coming over, your gals coming over, you ready? You're taking care of all of your honeydew things, you're taking care of making sure that the kids are knowing that uh, you love them and you're the most, they're the most important things in their lives. But, you know, for Sunday, don't bother me unless it's an emergency. You got all that taken care of because in 48 hours, Jack, in 48 hours, Jill, in 48 hours, Janissa, in 48 hours, Jose, in 48 hours, Jacques, in 48 hours, it's going to be time for some football. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Konnichiwa, wassalamu alaikum, shalom, namaste, que pasa, what's happening, what's going on? <laughs> I'm, um, I'm reading this story real quick as I'm uh, recording this um about Bill Belichick giving a nine-minute answer on special teams or a long snap or something like that. Just Bill, Bill Belichick's new way for uh, him to say, go fuck yourself to the press. There's one thing, though. The two people, well, there are three people still living who I would absolutely love to interview, but of course they'll never go on this little bullshit podcast that I'm doing. But uh, there's three people who I would absolutely positively love to interview. I would love to go ahead and interview. Number one would be Abdul Fakir, the remaining, the only remaining member of the four tops. I, I could talk to that man about just anything. Levi Stubbs, um, Obi Benson, you know, I could talk about, you know, how they started, you know, what was up in terms of when the four tops got started, they all met at a party when they were kids, not kids, but teenagers. And it was like Stubbs and Abdul Fakir knew each other and Lawrence Payton and Obi Benson knew each other. They were both from different schools. I think one went to, uh, I forgot which one, but they both went to, uh, the, the pair went to different high schools in Detroit. So they were at this party, this little high school party, and it was like, hey man, you know, why don't y'all get together and sing a song? And they were like, all right, let's go ahead and do that. You know, Levi, go ahead and sing something and we'll just back you up. So as soon as they started singing, it was like, Man, we knew we had something magical. And so that next day we got together and we just started, uh, you know, putting shit together and deciding what we wanted to do. And after that, that's how the uh, Ford Tops got started back when they were teenagers. I would love the first question I would ask Abdul Fakir would be, A, how in the world did you guys even get together in terms of, hey, you two should meet you two, those two, and get together and do some things. How did you guys even get the notion of doing that? What song did you sing? And what made y'all say, Levi, go ahead and uh, do the vocals? Why didn't uh, why didn't Obi Benson or why didn't Lawrence Payton? Lawrence Payton had a great voice. 
Why didn't he? Why wasn't he the one that said, "You know what? I'll go ahead and I'll uh, lead, and you guys back me up." What made that? What was? What went into that decision? And then, you know, you're speaking about a situation where these guys learned under, uh, you know, Count Basie and these guys, the four tops before they went to Motown. I mean, they did ten years, you know, doing jazz and working with jazz groups and all them folks. And so I would just love. I mean, back in the fifties and such, such. So I would love just to go ahead and just speak to Abdul Fakir about, you know, being on the road and working with those guys and what did you learn and when you went to Motown and do you ever think that you would be this big and could you imagine that Sugar Pie Honey Bunch would be this huge still going forward and, you know, the relationship, the friendship, the brotherhood that you have with the other three members and now that they're all gone, how much do you miss them? I mean, I would, I would love, I could sit there and talk to uh, Abdul Fakir for hours and hours and hours about that stuff, man. You know, doing their thing during the civil rights movement and you know segregation and all those things and the other two people who I would love to interview from the sports world would be Bill Belichick and Greg Popovich Bill Belichick I would just stick to the history of pro football I would, I'm a guy of history if it comes to what's going down in this country in this past 400 years 300 years 200 years and um, I'm a freak when it comes to history and sports so I would love to sit back and get his thoughts and feelings about you know him being a Baltimore Colt fan of what he felt after that 1976 AFC championship game with the Oakland Raiders no 1977 AFC championship game with the Oakland Raiders with Ted Marchabrota and Burt Jones and those guys and Lydell Mitchell and those guys who was he rooting for because, you know, Belichick was born in Annapolis. So I would be like, man, you know, watching that game, what were your thoughts, what were your feelings, what were your emotions? You know, you, at the time, Annapolis, you got AFL games along with NFL games. What was your favorite league? What were the team that you liked the most? What were your favorite players, you know, growing up, this, that, and the other? Your dad's influence on you becoming a coach and the difference or the similarities that it is between being a coach and being an educator and, and those type of things. I would just love to uh, have a conversation like that with Bill Belichick. I wouldn't give a damn if he did, you know, stare right through me and give me one word answers. I think it would be very fascinating. And I think I would do very well in terms of asking him those questions. And with Greg Popovich, it would just be just all over the place, man, from basketball to life and trying to intertwine basketball, life, how he uses basketball to uh, help young men, all those type of things. You know, his philosophy on coaching, his philosophy of working with young men and different things. And I, I mean, I would just love it. I would absolutely love it. Bill Belichick, Abdul Fakir, and um, Greg Popovich. Again, I could interview those guys. I could do a five-hour podcast with those guys. I just wouldn't stop. I mean, they'd just be so fascinating. So there you go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Moving on now to college football. As I mentioned before, I didn't didn't mention it before, but uh, Clay Helton got fired. I remember talking about Clay Helton is on a hot seat and after getting embarrassed at home by Stanford that Clay Helton was on the hot seat. I didn't think that they would go ahead and pull the trigger and, and the relationship, the working relationship that they had with them. But yes, and duty diddy, they did. It was a situation where, look, before USC gets into the meat of a schedule where they have some winnable games, we don't want to make the same mistake because that's really how Clay Helton got the job in the first place when he replaced Steve Sarkeesian because he had to leave because of uh, personal issues, too much drinking. And uh, Clay Helton came in and he had a pretty good run as far as being the interim head coach is concerned, Pat Hayden or Lynn Swan, whoever was the athletic director at that time for USC, decided that it was a good deal 
a good idea to give him a contract extension and bid only against themselves in terms of how much money he was going to make and how difficult it could be if the time came in the near future where they might have to make a move, the ineptitude and the incompetence at the position of the athletic director of Pat Hayden or Lynn Swan led to a situation where, hey man, you know, I mean, we're in a bind. We want to fire you, but uh, we might not have the financial means to fire you. So you got, like, finally got to a point where it was now time to uh, go ahead and do some things in terms of uh, in terms of letting them go. So Clay Helton is no longer the head coach of the USC Trojans, as I mentioned before, I think, on many platforms, which I'm trying to promote this podcast and in the podcast itself. I think that Clay Helton is a good man. I think Clay Helton is a good coach. I think Clay Helton would be a very good coach at a non-traditional power. Very few men... And really, I mean, can can good guys really succeed if you're speaking about being the coach, being the head coach at one of these major power football conferences? If you're going to be the coach at an Alabama, if you're going to be a coach at a, at a Georgia or an Ohio State or USC or now Clemson or something like that, can you be a quote unquote nice guy? Don't you have to have some ruthlessness to you? Don't you have to have some type of... Uh, I don't want to say bad people because I don't. I don't you know, I've never met Kirby Smart or Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney. Some of the things that Dabo Sweeney said was kind of uh, laced in privileged and not being aware of. But I don't think Dabo Sweeney is a bad guy. I don't think Ryan Day is a horrible human being. I don't think Nick Saban is. I'll stab you in the back and then laugh at you bleed to death type of guy. I don't think Kirby Smart is a guy who's going to be a scumbag of a human being. I don't think it's any of those things. But I just, just think that you have to have some type of competitive ruthlessness in you to be able to succeed at the highest level of college football. And I don't think that Clay Helton had it. I think Clay Helton is a good man and he's a good coach. And again, it's not to say that Nick Staben isn't a good man or Dabo Sweeney isn't a good man. I'm not saying those things, but I'm just saying, though, that I think that there's a situation where... Hey, man, you know, Clay Helton, I don't think, was cut out to be that type of coach or be able to do something like that if it entailed that he went ahead and did something. So, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, Clay Helton, you know, you put him in one of the uh, MAC conferences, you put him over in uh, something like, uh, you know, a, a lesser tier Southeastern school or something like that. Great, wonderful, fantastic. But for him trying to be a... uh, coach of a team that's going to be competing for championships year after year after year for him to be in the position where the expectations are you win a national championship or you know it's not really a, a, a good deal it's not really a great deal I think that uh, Clay Helton is not uh, not cut for that and I think there's very few college coaches or I think there's very few coaches of that ilk that are I should also throw Lincoln Riley in there too in terms of coaches who uh are made to be coaches of a high-profile program, but yet and still, they have that ruthlessness, that competitive edge that Clay Helton didn't have. Again, not to say that Lincoln Riley is some horrible human being. But uh, So now we're moving forward here on Wendell's World of Sports the Podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. What do we do now if we're talking about USC? Where do we go? What are we talking about as far as a coach is concerned? Because as of right now, the head coach for USC moving forward is going to be, what's this kid's name? What's this guy's name? He's not a kid. He's a, he's a, he's a grown man. Uh, let me see here. Looking at the story. Oh, Dante Williams. He's going to be the interim head coach 
for the rest of the season. So we're, we're taking a look now at some of these guys to restore some of the shine, restore some of the shine back to when uh, USC football was rolling. And we're speaking about the Pete Carroll era, which rivals John McKay and John Robinson and any of the great runs of uh, USC football. I mean, they were right up there, but USC had been won a championship since 2004. They really haven't been relevant in, I think, over a decade. So if you're speaking about the last time that, uh, you know, to go back to the time that Carroll left in 2010 and you had Lane Kiffin and you moved to Steve Sarkeesian and then um, Clay Helton, really been decent but not elite Kiffin went 28 and 15 in three and a half seasons from 2010 to 2013 remember he was wasn't he fired like on a tarmac as soon as they got back from a loss they were like you know you're not even going back to the campus we're we're firing your ass uh, right there um finished 20 and finished 10 and 2 in 2011 but he was mediocre the rest of the season so Sarkeesian Sarkeesian took over for a season and a half. He went nine and four his first year, then three and two before resigning. Again, the pressure of uh, being a coach of that squad and the reputation that is still held at that time because the Pete Carroll era was still fresh in a lot of generational uh, kids' mind. So, you know, USC has been um, kind of sputtering. Good, but not where they want to be. So some of the names that are being thrown out there to replace him, to replace Helton, that can bring the uh, Trojans back to prominence. James Franklin, now coaching at Penn State, 49 years old, 62 and 8 and 28, as the coach with the Nittany Lions, top three, top 10 finishes. Luke Fickle, 48 years old, coaching now at Indy, uh, Cincinnati, been 33 and 6 since 2018. He's had three straight seasons of finishing in the top 25, not bad. The one season, though, he was the coach at a major university. Remember where he took over for Jim Trussell because of this whole scandal about um, tattoos or I don't know if it was that or Maurice Claret or maybe it was a combination of both. Claret was a little bit later, but you threw in that nonsense and then you threw in the uh, tattoos and selling memorabilia or selling, selling rings and for money and all those type of things finally led to uh, Trussell being fired. Well, Luke Fickle took over at the interim coach for that 2011 season. He went 6-7 and seven before he was replaced by Urban Meyer. Bob Stoops is another guy, 61 years old. He's working for the pregame show on Fox. Every time he comes on and every time we're talking about, Coach, what do you say in the halftime? What do you say to these guys at halftime? Ohio State's down. What do you say? What do you say? And he says, I just tell them that everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be no no problem. We're going to get back. Remember who you are. Remember who you're playing against. This, that, and the other. I'm like, okay. Interesting. He won a national championship, speaking of Stoops, in 2000. I don't think that he ever gave that type of speech in the locker room. I think there was some stuff more valid, more substantive, but uh, won a national championship in, 20, in uh, 2000, the second year as coach, won 10 Big 12 championships, finished in the final five national rankings six times. But he always seemed, I don't know, man, he always seemed to lose a game where it was like, man, really, you lost to them? Really? And then there was a couple of times, I think in a national championship game or in an important game where they got themselves embarrassed. I know when USC beat them down in uh, Florida, down in Miami for the Orange Bowl, I know that wasn't pretty. That's when uh, Adrian Peterson was a freshman and um, they had a pretty good squad and USC with Matt Liner and those guys ran a rough shot over them. But uh, I'm not saying the Stoops wouldn't be a, a good hire, but damn, 61 years old? Okay. He retired. 
from Oklahoma in 2016, 190 and 48 overall record. Last coaching position, head coach, general manager in 2019 of the Dallas Renegades of the XFL. Really never got to do anything because the league shut down due to uh, COVID-19 and they didn't have enough money. So that's another person. I don't th- I don't know if he would take the job. Chris Peterson, 56 years old, working as an analyst at Fox. Overall record at Boise State in Washington, 147-38. Last coach to have uh, a Pac-12 team in the college football playoffs. You're speaking about Washington going in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, it's been that long for the Pac-12. 2015. So, of all the choices, it's like, Peterson, I think, would be the oddball fit just from a personality situation. I think the man can coach. But, man, you're taking, you're talking about a guy who does not like a lot of attention. He does not like to have that spotlight on him. And you're in L.A., and you're going to be competing with the Lakers. You're going to be competing with the Rams. You're going to be competing with the – well, the Chargers is no big deal. But, I mean, so you're going to be competing in, in that market. And if Chris Peterson is up there, you know, bristling at some of the stuff that he had to do in Washington or even in Boise State, what is that going to be like in uh, Los Angeles? So of all of these coaches, and you also have Matt Campbell, you've got uh, Bill O'Brien, the offensive coordinator over at Alabama. You've got P.J. Rowe, your boat flack over at Minnesota. Hire that I think would be interesting, Tony Elliott, the offensive coordinator at Clemson. Also, Oregon coach Mario Cristobal. If I'm Cristobal, why in the world would I leave Oregon? Right now, as it stands, Oregon is a better program than USC. You got just amount, just the same amount of money as USC. Your facilities are off the hook. And if you're talking about guys from L.A. who just want to get out of the area, I mean, some guys who might be from certain sections of our of L.A. are like, hey, man, I'm tired of this gang-banging bullshit, and I'm tired of which color do I have to use and wear, and I'm tired of I can't walk down this neighborhood, I can't walk up this neighborhood, I can't be in this area, I can't be in that area. I'm tired of all this bullshit. I'm tired of my homies being shot and killed and I have to be there for all that nonsense. Man, I got to get the fuck out of here. So if I don't want to go to UCLA. I don't want to go to USC. What's the best choice for me to... Uh, Go to school and be on the West Coast so my folks can come up and see me. They don't have to travel 3,000 miles or 1,500 miles or 2,000 miles to see me. I'll go to Oregon. Oregon's got money. They've got a sugar daddy of a hell of a booster and Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. You've got excellent facilities. you got a strong fan base down there. Mario Cristobal had built such a strong program as we saw evidenced by their win this past weekend against Ohio State on the road. Why in the world would he then go ahead and uh, take the USC job. Oregon can offer just amount of, the same amount of money or more for US, than uh, USC if that needs to uh, come to fruition. So why would Mario Cristobal leave? You know how long that he spent to build that program and now you're going to leave so you can go ahead and restart another program? There's no guarantee. There's no uh, uh, you know guarantee that he's going to you know have the same success or build it quick, quickly or quicker than... Uh, what he did at Oregon, you, you don't you don't leave a program that you built right there. So if, if I'm Mario Cristobal, I'm not going anywhere. I might, you know, kind of throw out the, you know, no comment or whatever just to make the uh, alumni and just to make the donors nervous so I can get a, you know, a contract extension or, or raise or something like that. But, you know, some of these guys, Matt Campbell, P.J. Flack and these guys, I mean, it'd be foolish for those guys, James Franklin. It'd be foolish for those guys to sit there and be like, nah, no, 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 no. Why not? You know, be non-committal. And that way, you know, I mean, Iowa State, 
I mean, Iowa State, you don't think that Iowa State would give Matt Campbell a race to uh, stay and uh, be the coach there? Now, they're not going to go exorbitant and just spend boatloads of money that they don't have, but Matt Campbell, the best thing that's happened to Iowa State football maybe ever. You're going to see they're going to let him go based on the fact because they didn't want to give him a raise. I don't know. Bill O'Brien, I mean, you know, bad GM, but a very good coach in the NFL and in Penn State. He turned that program around after uh, taking over for uh, Joe Paterno and that whole Sandusky situation. P.J. Fleck shown that he's won in Western Michigan, had done some good things at Minnesota. If you're P.J. Fleck, I mean, you know, guy full of energy, is kind of a Pete Carroll-type clone in terms of that exuberant personality. I mean, he could, you know, do really well as far as recruiting is concerned. He's young enough. He's energetic enough. He's cool enough with the young folks that uh, he could keep the um, recruiting at a high level, even raise it up another level. Tony Elliott, I think a, a black man being hired by the uh, – by the administration would be a big deal in that situation. And I think it might entice some of the uh, five-star, four-star football players who might want to, uh, you know, check out Mr. Elliott and play at USC. So those are the things. Urban Meyer flatly said he has no interest in the job. Whatever. We'll see. I I don't even know why USC would be interested in him anyway. Oh, I know. Everywhere he goes, he wins. Take a look at uh, Utah. Take a look at Bowling Green. Take a look at Florida. Take a look at Ohio State. Okay, let's take a look at those, especially Ohio State and Florida. Let's take a look at those programs. Yeah, he won. Without question, he won. Hey, championships, national championships, but when he leaves your program, he leaves your program in shambles. He left the program in shambles at Florida. He left the program in shambles at Ohio State. In terms of, you know, reputation stuff, I know Ryan Day turned it around and really not too much to turn around, but you you, you knew all the bullshit that went down Urban Meyer's last year. And then you also have to deal with him with his health problems. And Urban Meyer is not the same guy that he was when he was coaching at Florida and coaching at Ohio State. He's older. He's much more susceptible to illness problems and here's a guy who's you know already had some health issues so how how long is he for the job at usc so what he's gonna win your championship in two or three years and then in five or six years quit while before he uh before the program is under some type of ncaa investigation or some shit like that i wouldn't touch uh, urban meyer if i'm usc i wouldn't do it i want someone who's going to be there for the long haul and if you remember the best hire that they ever had outside of John Robinson and and uh, John McKay, Pete Carroll, that was roundly booed and laughed at and mocked when he was picked to be the head coach at USC. And I think that he was like the fourth or fifth guy. That wasn't even USC's number one choice. So don't let, um, you know, whether you win or lose the press conference, who gives a flip? It's about winning and losing in the game. So there you go. Find somebody who's going to be able, the coach for the USC Trojans football team, find somebody who should be able to dominate the West Coast high school talent. Keep them, keep them at home, especially when we're speaking about quarterbacks, man. Bryce Young, the kid over at Clemson, DJ, whoever, whatever, CJ Stroud over at uh, Ohio State, Spencer Rattler over in Oklahoma, JT Daniels, he started off at USC, but then he lost his uh, position after injury to Keevan Slovis, and so he's now over at Georgia. The jury is still out on him, but there's been plenty of really major talent, especially at the quarterback position, who um, from the West Coast who have not stayed. These guys, you can't tell me USC should not be 
getting we're talking about Daniels, Rattler, Stroud, DJ, and Bryce Young. Three of those guys didn't couldn't go to USC or you know you know what I'm saying. So interesting, interesting. But uh, USC is looking for a head coach. Don't win the press conference, man. Find the uh, best coach that's available. Don't go on past deals in terms of well he did this and he he did that, man. Talk about someone who's going to bring some enthusiasm. Talk about someone who's going to bring some vision. Talk about someone who's going to be able to recruit the Los Angeles area. I mean, you've got Los Angeles, you got Bakersfield, you got Fresno, you got San Diego, you got San Jacinto, you've got uh, you've got all over. You've got you've got a uh, you know two to three hour trip anywhere that you want to build a national championship. And by the way, USC when Pete Carroll was bringing that thing to the hilt, I mean they were getting guys from New Jersey, they were getting guys from the Midwest, they were getting guys from Florida. I mean they were getting guys from all over the place. So when USC is rolling, and you've got that LA recruiting base down and locked up and tightened up and you can go out and start plucking five-star recruits skill position players from texas and new york and pennsylvania and ohio and all them places that's where usc wants to be don't mess up this hire fellas the opportunity is there usc mike bone the athletic director do not mess up this opportunity Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Final segment of the podcast. Thank you very much for sticking around, speaking about what's happening in the world of sports. Talked about the NFL, talked about my Georgetown Hoya, talked about my girlfriend Ty Conley, talked about the wonderful, beautiful Bianca Belair, talked about the sexy Jake Cargill, talked about Biggie Langston, talked about USC needing a new football coach. So now, let's go ahead in the remaining moments that we have on the program, talk about what's happening week three of the college football season. Of course, the game of interest for me, the biggest game of interest for me, is going to be the number one ranked Alabama Crimson Tide at the Swamp, number 11 ranked Florida. guess you could say for Alabama, this is the first uh, big test on the road against a top 12, top 13 school I know Miami, I'm going to say that they're pretty much frauds and something like that. When you're speaking about, well, Wendell, they already played a top 15 ranked team and they played them on a neutral field. Uh, Miami, frauds. So I'm going to go ahead and say this is going to be one of the, and plus this is one of the few games left that uh, Alabama has where, you know, they're not going to be overwhelming favorites, even though they're, what, 22 and a half point favorites going into this game. Both teams are undefeated through two games. Alabama, as I mentioned before, defeating Miami and Mercer. Florida defeating the mighty Florida Atlantic team and, of course, South Florida. So, you know, they're ready to take on the L.A. Chargers and the Kansas City Champions. Last year in the SEC Championship game, the uh, the last time these two teams met, hey, man, at least Florida gave them somewhat of a game, 52-46. to 46. But, unfortunately, 
Lee Caltrast, who completed 26 to 40 passes for 408 yards, 15 of those for 282 yards, going to Kadarius Tony and Kyle Pitts. None of those guys are walking through that door, and if they are, they're going to be walking through as spectators and cheerleaders, not players. So Florida hasn't beaten Miami in his last seven tries, and in fact, it's been 15 years since Florida's last victory over Alabama in the swamp. Does it look good? Not very good for Alabama. Florida, I don't know what they're going to do with their offense in terms of the quarterback is concerned against Florida Atlantic and South Florida. Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson both play combined for 456 yards passing, 430 yards rushing. But if you take a look at these two quarterbacks, Jones and Richardson, two completely different styles of play. Jones more of a passer, 31 of 49, 264 yards, even though he had four interception. He's taken one sack, rushed 22 times for 163 yards. That's nice. But Richardson, on the other hand, he's more of the dual threat. He's more of the runner when you're speaking about, yeah, he's thrown 11 times. He's completed six of them, but he's also thrown for 192 yards, two touchdowns. He's had 11 rushes, and he's scored twice and gained 275 yards. Good average if you can get it. Something tells me that Florida Atlantic in Central Florida, whatever whatever Florida team they were playing, is going to be a little bit tougher, will be a little bit more harder to run against Alabama. Look, Alabama just continues to dominate, man, just especially on offense. You take a look. Remember when we were speaking about Nick Saban and the cloud of dust, Nick Saban running and ball control and system quarterbacks? Well, since the start of the 2018 season, since the start of the 2018 season, Alabama has scored at least 31 points in 40 of 43 games. 12 of their last 15 in 2018 and have gone on a 28 game streak of scoring at least 30 points per game and you're looking at Bryce Young now through the first two games completing 71% of his passes seven touchdowns only two sacks gotten Alabama on the scoreboard on 14 of 19 drives are you kidding me are you serious 12 for 16 for 200 yards and five TDs against blitzes this far Alabama looks incredibly good Alabama looks awesomely good. Alabama looks like, uh, as I mentioned before, head and shoulders above everybody else. So I don't, I don't know exactly how Florida is going to contend with this. I don't know if Florida has the makeup. I don't know if Florida has the game plan. I don't know if Florida can do anything in terms of keeping the ball away from Alabama. I don't even know if Florida even had the offense to even score 21, 24, 28 points against now this Alabama squad on defense that has been the best in Nick Saban's tenure for a long time at Alabama. So we'll see. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Auburn ranked 22nd in the country at number 10, Penn State. How good is Auburn after beating Akron and, of course, Alabama State by a combined 122 points to 10? 122 to 10. They've gained 1,151 yards. They've only allowed 364. Bo Nix, it looked like, I don't know, Bryce Young completing 74% of his passes. Uh, Jarquez Hunter and Tank Bisbee has combined to average 12 yards per carry. The defense has already gotten 22 tackles for losses. How are they going to play in front of 110,000 people at Happy Valley with the whiteouts? That will remain to be seen, but again, something tells me that they're not going to be able to do what they did against Akron and Alabama State. 
the um, uh, Penn State has already, uh, you know, played a really tough game on the road against Wisconsin, so they're going to be ready. So they've already been uh, challenged. I don't know what's going to be happening with um, Auburn. I think the pressure really is going to be on Penn State. Auburn's breaking in a new coach. Um, as I mentioned before, ranked 22nd. They're playing in the same division as Alabama, so that's not going to be going anywhere and going anywhere fast. So um, I think all the pressure is going to be on Penn State. If Auburn can go on the road, Penn State, in front of 110,000 people and get that win, it'll say a lot about where the program is going as far as the upward mobility and the positivity is concerned. But uh, I think Penn State is going to go ahead and do a number on them. And then... We have Nebraska at Oklahoma, the game of the century, 50-year anniversary of the game of the century. Don't think it's going to be <laughs> living up to uh, that moniker. I think that uh, that uh, Ohio, that's to be that Oklahoma is going to run roughshod over Nebraska, and of course, people are going to then be sitting there and talking about, man, I cannot believe how far Nebraska has fallen, because people are going to be talking about game of the century, game of the century, bringing up Tom Osborne, bringing up the success that Nebraska had in the 80s and the 90s, when they were truly one of the elite programs in college football, and now it's going to be a situation where, man, look at them now, look at how they are competing against some of the best teams in the in college football and I think that uh, for the most part that uh, Oklahoma is going to embarrass them and there's going to be more outrage for there's going to be more outrage for Scott Frost moving forward how much farther how much longer how much more evidence do you need in terms of saying hey this guy even though he did great things as quarterback for Nebraska back in the day I mean how much longer can Trev Alberts the AD continue to put up with such mediocrity and poor play uh, from Nebraska when you're going up against some of the elite college football programs moving forward and then other teams looking to bounce back Iowa State who lost to Iowa they'll be on the road against UNLV Texas who got their asses whooped by Arkansas They'll be at home against Rice, Ohio State, surprising loss to Oregon. They'll be at home against Tulsa to right the wrongs, go ahead and try to uh, improve that defense and such. So those are some of the games that I'm going to be watching. Those are some of the games that I'm going to be intrigued with. Those are some of the games that's going to get me excited for the next couple of days here to be watching football before I head back up to Mesquite and once again save the day for you, for me, for my generation, for the other generation because after all, these kids are the ones that are going to be taking care of us when we get old, so it's going to be up to me to make sure that I show them the right way on uh, how to do things, especially when you're speaking the area where I'm going, especially for my community, let them see in the flesh what a proud, strong, intelligent, articulate black man is all about who is not afraid to show his strength and not, not afraid to show who he is 100% soul power, 100% black, showing him that there's different ways, showing him that there's different uh, folks in terms of our community that's different from what they see on the news, what they see in other places, what they're trying Folks who are trying to tear our community apart, which are trying to show in terms of who is really black and all this kind of nonsense. My duty, my job to show them kids who have really no avenue or no uh, pathway 
of uh, gaining any type of real relationships with folks from our community to let them know that, hey, as I mentioned before, the stuff that you see in rap music, stuff that's being talked about on Fox News and all this other bullshit is just that bullshit. A real black man talks with intelligence. A real black man is proud of who he is. The real black man is not afraid to show and talk about how proud he is. The real black man is all of those things. And uh, that's what I am. So that's what I, uh, that's what I bring. All right, so there you go. I am out of here. What am I going to end with? What am I going to end with? I'll surprise you. I am going to surprise you. All I'm just going to say is y'all be good. You guys keep doing what you need to do to move this society, to move this place in a positive direction. Wendell's World of Sports, yours truly, music. <laughs>